ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Four Corners Podcast on the Pit Podcast Network. My name is Shad. I'm joined tonight by Matt and Brad. We're going to be doing a retrospective tonight. We've just kind of picked a random pay-per-view, and if you've been listening, you'll know which one it is. But the important thing is that we need to get our regular shout-out in. Matt, what do you think? Uh, big shout-out to Epico Cologne. Um, I'm sure he's seen this pay-per-view that we're going to discuss tonight, and hopefully it's a favorite of his. So <laughs> This is going to pay off one way or another sooner or later, right? Yeah, with, with him <laughs> blocking so. all of us on social media. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. In my uh, heart of hearts, my dream is that eventually like, we are able to, to interview Epico Cologne um, live on this podcast. I, <laughs> that, I, I would dream. love... I was thinking today, um, I would love to get a wrestler on this podcast one day, and who I would really love to interview actually is Necro Butcher. Ooh. That'd, that'd ruin our PG-13 rating, wouldn't it? Probably. But he's, <laughs> Have you ever, like, I, I, think, I think I've sent Shad clips, but, like, he is... He is like one of the most interesting people to listen talk to just be like his his um perspective on life and like the fact that he's like he went to college when he was 15 because he's brilliant like he's just yeah. an interesting guy. Now, hang on just a second. You do have a wrestler on that well, a retired wrestler on this podcast. Oh yeah, we But you're talking about a name. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're talking about getting an actual name. Yeah. All right, fair enough. So tonight, we are going to be talking about a pay-per-view that took place the month before an extremely historic pay-per-view. We're not talking about uh, Bash at the Beach 96. We're talking about the Great American Bash 1996, uh, which did lead in with the Bash at the Beach. This This is an interesting show. There's a lot of different stuff on it. And I don't think there's – well, we'll get to it as we go. It's it's an interesting show. The first match, the opener on this card, is Fire and Ice, which is Ice Train, and Scott Norton versus the Steiner Brothers. Matt, why don't you give us your thoughts on this one first? Well, let's, uh, let's, let's start off talking about the pay-per-view with uh, a, a Sergeant Craig Pittman sighting. Yes. Um, where he's holding the flag – uh, during the national anthem playing, That's true. <laughs> um, I thought That's that was true. interesting. The beatings um, will continue until morale improves. That is still the greatest quote. I can't believe someone hasn't stolen that and, and doesn't use that like right now. So if, um, we're, if we're talking about if we're talking about some of my favorite bad gimmicks, um, Sergeant Craig Pittman is right up there with Hole in One Barry Darso is my all time <laughs> favorites. Dude, Hole in One Barry Darcel was genius because he could do his whole gimmick and not actually ever have to bump. I know, and him like just beating people for getting uh for getting the ball in the hole was amazing. Or, or I remember once he got uh, one of the luchadors, I can't even remember which one, to lean down to try and put the ball in the hole with a golf club like golf club like a pool cue. So the guy's lining up to try and knock it in that way, and he just drops an elbow on the back of his head. Nice. That was... <laughs> I can just imagine that discussion. Be like, no, man, this will be great. We won't actually have to work. We'll have a whole segment, and you know, it'll be like one bump, Max. 
just just I won't stomp on you with the golf cleats. Don't worry about it. He uh, he hung around for a really long time. I remember he was still doing like worldwide stuff into like '97. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was around a, a bit. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, we saw a Sergeant Craig Pittman sighting, and we have we have Tony and Dusty on commentary. Tony we Schiavone. We got the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. Let me tell you something, Daddy. These guys are working hard to go to the pay window. I know that's not a good Dusty, but God, I love doing it. Look, so, sorry. Tony, Tony Schiavone and Dusty Rhodes are an extraordinarily underrated commentary team. I remember watching many, many, many episodes of WCW Saturday Night. Where they would do commentary. And We're on the mothership. We're We're on the, the mothership, mothership. Tony. Taking them to the pay window. I'm going to mention it now because I'm going to forget it by the time we get to that match. But during the the Big Bubba Rogers John Tenta match, he was calling him <laughs> Bubba. Yeah, oh, he always called <laughs> Bubba. Him. Bubba. He always right called him. He was, Bubba's Bubba's going to be coming at him here, Daddy. What him? What what he does here? He just moves so good for a man his size, does Bubba. He didn't do my favorite thing though for for Big Bubba though. Is like Big Bubba Rogers be clever and Tony. Clever. Well, you, to really get a good clevering, you have to have a, a sort of nasty voice uh, street fight match. Yeah, those are always the best. <laughs> look at him! Look at him, Tony. They be clevering. They got the plunder. It's, it's so interesting that promo Dusty Rhodes was so different than commentary Dusty Rhodes. Commentary Dusty Rhodes was a lot of fun. It was fun, but there was so much. Okay, if you sat through the commentary in this pay-per-view and you didn't know anything about Dusty, would you have believed that that guy would, be, would have been capable of doing the Hard Times promo? Oh no, he his commentary was always very kind of tongue in cheek. I, th- I think yeah. part of the problem with his commentary too is um his shtick did not convert to the '90s very well. Yeah, because his because his '80s stuff like the hard time stuff, there's a very like gritty kind of 1970s movie feel to that. Mm-hmm. And um. I think there was a lot, like, societally that went into those. Like, um, you know what he was trying to be? He was, like, in, um, and I think it lost some of its luster in the 90s. Like, he was kind of like a cable preacher in his, like, a lot of his 80s stuff. Like, that cadence and, like, the delivery. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that was kind of out of vogue in the 90s. And it didn't, like, I don't think you could, I think it got old in commentary really quick. Yeah. It, it it was a good shtick for doing promos, but on commentary, it, it does run it, uh, does kind of run it, uh, run thin. I mean, uh, he wasn't as bad as like Ted DiBiase or Piper, who were terrible. <sighs> That's just not where their talents were suited, you know? No. Yeah. But, okay, so Fire and Ice versus the Steiners. So I I actually had mentioned this match on a previous uh, podcast episode, and I really actually enjoyed this match. This this was a kind of a, a hidden gem. It's not a it's not a five star classic, but I don't know if I was if if I was gonna throw snowflakes at this one, I would probably give it like a good three stars or so. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just two teams of big power dudes just throwing all sorts of power moves at each other just going crazy like it, it starts off with i forget which steiner it is but it starts off like I think it, was scott. it was scott yeah scott, yeah because scott, um scott always starts the match 
because he has to tag Rick in so he can do his lap and like they do like the dog thing. So Scott has oh, to start yeah. the match. Yeah, I didn't think about that. But yeah, it starts with Scott versus Ice Train. It's fine. But then when Ice Train tags in Scott Norton, that's when it kind of kicks into gear. And it just goes from there. Um, you mean Scott almost dropping Norton like right on his neck? Oh, that was kind of scary. I don't know what yeah. that was about. Um, and it's just they're just they're just throwing all sorts of shit at each other. You have Rick just suplexing and clotheslining Scott Norton like crazy. Um, you, I kind of forgot how mobile uh, Scott Steiner was at one point. I mean, he's just doing drop kicks and throwing at the Frankensteiner at Norton. Yeah. Um, and I don't. I actually feel Ice Train, who wasn't a great wrestler, but he was actually pretty good in this too, except for that one period during it where he kind of like throws on a chin lock for some reason. But he showed yeah. a lot of Ice Train showed a lot of personality here. Like I remember he never sure did. thinking much of him, and I was kind of watching this match. And I'm like, you know, like Ice Train's he was pretty, all right. Yeah, like I it must have just been like a one off because I've never heard like much good said about him he, he was good in this he like pulled it together for this match this was like a really good power wrestler match like and it was just super cool like guys just throwing shit at each other well remember Norton, Nor- go ahead remember they like they didn't use ice train for like three years and then they brought him back as a limo driver because they were getting sued for racial discrimination oh, oh for because that. of because of uh mr hard work bobby walker no, and, Probably both Bobby and Sonny, Walker and Sonny Ono. Yeah, I almost said Mr. Fuji. I'm like, no, that's the wrong guy. Oh, that's, uh, <laughs> yeah, there you go. No, yeah, but that's that's the whole reason they brought it back. And I think his name was, um, was it M.I. Smooth? It was something smooth, yeah. Um, but this was, uh, this was a good match. I There's a couple of things that it really struck, kind of struck me, um, or things that I took away from it. One... I for, I haven't seen a, a lot of his New Japan stuff, but Norton was really good in this, and I always maybe wonder why he never did a lot more in America. I mean, I'm surprised he never went to the WWE because he had he had a good look. He was huge. He was super strong. I mean, there's a point in this match where Scott I think goes for uh, a top rope crossbody and he catches him. Yeah, and just like chucks him, and it's. You're, Scott got bigger, but Scott was what, two hundred, close to three hundred pounds probably. Uh, yeah, and Norton, I would say. Norton probably. catches it. Scott Norton. The thing that I got from watch, you know, just seeing him walk to the ring, is you look at him and the dude's torso is just built like a steel drum. He's oh, got he that barrel chest, huge, yeah. And so you know, even like. If Scott Norton spent three years sitting on the couch eating Cheetos and, you know, his arms went down and his legs got smaller, he'd still be built that same way and he'd still be terrifying. So I thought um, I thought he was in one of the most underrated tag teams of the 90s, which would be Vicious and Delicious. Bagwell actually was a a very good tag team wrestler. And I actually prefer Bagwell and Norton together to Bagwell and Steiner together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree with that because um, Norton was a very good straight man for Bagwell's eccentricities. Yeah, it was a good. Um, it, it, it's it's a good contrast. 
Um, another thing that I thought was really cool with this match, or, or what I actually thought was like a weird spot, um, and I don't know if you guys have any perspective on it, but the part where Norton has Scott in an arm bar. Yeah. And he's like tweaking it, and Rick Steiner just comes in and just starts booting the shit out of him directly in his face. And it looks, it looked kind of stiff. And I oh, was yeah. kind of confused about that. I'm like, what, what's happening? I'm to guess- suddenly get real. I'm guessing because, um, Norton came from that. Uh, so what I'm thinking happened here is because the Steiners worked New Japan from time to time, and Norton was a New Japan regular, that they decided they were going to lay stuff in pretty heavy and stiff on each other, and Ice Train kind of got stuck in the crossfire. Uh, Ice Train would not want to... They're going to be like, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to lay it in, and then Ice Train doesn't want to be the guy that goes, uh, do we have to? <laughs> yeah, because... Because Norton Norton strikes me as the kind of guy who says, hey, can we just stiff the ever-loving shit out of you? He's going to be like, yeah, go for it. I'm going to do it right back. Like, okay, let's go yeah. do it. That spot, the other thing that makes sense to me in that spot is that's right after Norton did, what, one or two shoulder breakers, and he's put Scott in that Fujiwara armbar. So he's, like, from a from a match perspective, he's trying to like put him away right there. And the idea is if he holds on to that arm bar, even with Rick stomping on him, Scott might still give up. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I know exactly what you mean. It looks like stomp. It looks like Rick's trying to uh, stomp Scott's back through Norton's face. And, and that, that, um, those shoulder breakers were vicious. Mm hmm. I thought this was I. This is not something I would pick out on a card, like ever, and be like, "Hey, I want to watch that." But it was a fun like. I I wouldn't say it's an all time classic or anything, but it was a fun little bomb throw fest. It was a fun match. It was like I said, it's kind of like a hidden gem. So I would call it a great example of a good power match between so, some some big dudes. So, I don't know if I noticed him by this point, but there so there's a guy in the front row wearing a crown. And I decided at least in the second match that I hated him and I hoped that a wrestler just like attacked him at some point and broke his face. I don't know that I saw him. You didn't see the little the douche with like the pedo stash with like the crown in like the middle of the front row like on the I don't know cam? that I, I I wasn't really looking. So it's kind of hard to. Oh, he wasn't. He just bugged me for some reason. All right. I think so... I found him during the next match because I wanted to kill myself during the next match. <laughs> so that means that we had Fire and Ice and the Steiners. I think Matt said a three-star match. I think that's a good, good rating for it. Uh, the next match on the card, unless I've got my card wrong, but I have Conan versus El Gato. Yep, that would be this match. So, uh, one thing that really struck me at this match is Conan was kind of over at this point. Yeah. Yeah, he was. I, in watching this, I looked at it, and it's like Conan comes out, and I'm like, oh, he's, he's, he's over. And then, out comes El Gato. And you guys, you guys knew who it was. I couldn't put my finger on it. Matt knew who it was, but, um... Yeah, it's uh, El Gato here was uh, Pat Tanaka, okay. um, you know, formerly of uh, Orient Express. And Bad okay. Company. And Bad Company. Bad Company the was probably B-A-double-D. the highlight of his career. Yeah. 
But in here comes Elgato, and I immediately kind of facepalm because it's like, here comes this dude who's in obvious jobber gear. He's wearing white wrestling shoes, plain black jogging pants, and whatever mask happened to be wearing, laying around backstage, it and they a, call him the cat. I think, he, I think he jumped tiger mask and stole his mask. That's what it looked like. And it's like, wow, gee, I wonder what the outcome on this is going to be. They put more effort into it than I thought they were going to. This was a weird match. Like, first off, I'm gonna, in full honesty, I'm, I don't think I've ever really been like a Conan fan. I don't think anyone has. No, I take that back. <laughs> I, I love Conan and LAX. I liked Conan's uh, Cradle DDT. That was just vicious looking. We're. Were either of you guys watching like TNA when like the, when the first like LAX with him and like Homicide and Hernandez got like really over? I I couldn't. Uh, I, I saw yeah, some of it. Yeah. I couldn't so see it. He did. He was doing great promos during this, and they'd have this guy like doing their intros in Spanish, and they were like coming in from their like own entrance. Like it was that is like when I thought Conan was at his best. But he was more of a manager, and I liked him in um. Lucha Underground managing King Puma. Okay. Uh, I haven't gotten I'm still to watch working. much Lucha Underground. I'm still working through like season one of uh, Lucha Underground. I'm kind of behind on that. Yeah, I I like it a lot, but it just I never am caught up on it. See, I'm in, I enjoy it, but I'm not as into it as some people are. I... I really enjoy it because of the way it's shot, because it's so different looking. Mm-hmm. But it gets a little, it gets a little weird sometimes. <laughs> and the and and honestly, other than like the production being great and the matches being kind of fun, I think the booking's typically really crappy. Mm. That's for another time. Okay, yeah. So this match eh, is all right. Um. I have to say the crowd is really hot for this show because they were even they didn't even crap on this and this deserved to be crapped on I thought. It was a weird well, match because they were it seems like they were trying to do like this weird uh hybrid lucha slash cruiserweight match. Yeah. Um but it was too math based I feel it was too slow. It was kind of odd. Um, I did to harken back to a previous uh, podcast episode uh, when Conan busted out the sunset power bomb onto the cement. I kind of <laughs> kind of popped it as I was laying there on my couch watching this. I'm like, oh, I so there we have that, an mark early that down for the right? yeah, mark that down for the sunset power bomb spot. I didn't yep. think this was good, but I thought Tanaka did some good work in the match. Is Elgato for for what seemed like it should be a jobber squash match it was pretty good but i will say i i looked this up to see how long it went it went six minutes i'm like that felt more like 15 minutes (laughs) all right so next match on the card i've got was a a battle for the battle bowl ring which uh just always struck me as kind of an odd thing to have but it was Marcus Alexander Bagwell, one half of the American Males, versus Diamond Dallas Page. This match was better than I thought it would be. 
I thought it this was... is a great match. Not like I'm not saying like an all time classic, but I this match really shocked me, and I thought it was a very fun, good match. It was a lot better than I was anticipating. I was I was thinking it'd just be like a whatever match uh, to kill time, mm-hmm. but it wound up being pretty good. Um, this was I feel this was obviously before his in 1997 when they really gave him a sustained push but this is kind you could kind of see like the seeds of them starting to maybe do something with ddp mm-hmm. and when he was in control of the match here um i thought he was trying to like kind of bust out some innovative stuff and not do things kind of by the numbers so yeah it was you know he's he's kind of finally starting to settle into his style and bagwell worked really hard at the beginning of that he did some good stuff it it kind of seemed to me like he was running out of stuff to do as the match went on but you know he did some good work early yeah um i thought he did a good job another thing that i thought i kind of enjoyed with this match is i had i thought dusty was kind of really playful in the commentary He was had a he had a really funny banter with with Tony on this match. I guess it was kind of like a whatever match to him, so he was just he was kind of working the shtick, but um, it was funny. And I thought um, it, this was kind of before it was a big deal, but I liked um, I liked DDP busting out the, the diamond cutter, and Bagwell took it great. Like he sold it, and he gave it like everything. He was like, okay, like we're gonna make this look really good, and just dove into the the diamond cutter he did and it it wasn't the snapped off version that we got used to seeing later on it was still the diamond cutter but it took a little more to get into it but it still it it looked like a good finish his looks so much better than randy orton's version of it yeah that that royal rumble that page was in and he like diamond cuttered like six guys that and then Orton was in it later. I'm just like, dude, don't don't even bother, because they're gonna compare you to Page in that, and that's just gonna hurt you. So it's something I'm gonna come back to as the show progresses. But so we're three matches into this show, and so far we've had three very different matches from each other. We've had kind of a bomb fest. We had like this weird hybrid kind of lucha style match, and then we had kind of what I would call an energetic. TV main event style match. Mm-hmm. So I think that's fair. I think it's something to keep in mind because, like, if this is a WWE show, we would have been subjected to like the same match at least twice so far. Yeah. Um, now, I don't know if I've got my um, I don't know if I've got my order right here, but was the big. Falls Count Anywhere match next? No, the next was Dean Malenko and Rey Mysterio. Malenko, Mysterio. All right, so Brad and I are going to argue about this one. But this was Malenko. This was also um, Mysterio's debut match in the company. So, Brad, why don't you talk us through this one a little bit? So this is pretty much Rey um, debuting. So they kind of do some trade-off stuff. And then Ray kind of hurts his shoulder, and Malenko, like a wild animal, pretty much just attacks his shoulder and arm relentlessly. Uh, Ray makes his comeback, does some high-flying stuff, pops the crowd. Malenko can't put him away, can't put him away, finally has to pin him with his feet on the ropes. Crowd pops huge for this, um, which actually really surprised me. Mm-hmm. 
Malenko was over, which was kind of a a testament purely to his skill because his gimmick at the time wasn't really like he wasn't he wasn't flashy, he didn't have a lot of he, personality, but he was He just, almost got a standing ovation when he won. This was a really I thought this was a really good match. It was just very interesting because you have Rey Mysterio who is obviously an incredible high flyer and this is even before, you know, he obviously the years kind of broke him down a bit. He could do so many crazy things in the match and you didn't really have him do a ton of those things. Um, yeah. Which I guess maybe you guys might, are, I don't know if you, that this is what you're going to argue over, but I thought it was interesting that they took a slower approach to the match where it was mostly Malenko working over the arm. I thought it was pretty different and it did slow the match down, um, which I guess in some respects you could, you could argue it wasn't the best showcase for Ray, but it did make a lot of sense in terms of the psychology of the match. And I just thought it was a solid match and it did, it did heat up at the end you had ray kind of busting out some of those high flying moves and that's what led blanco to have to to cheat to win i thought they did like i thought mike today did a good job on commentary kind of like establishing like <laughs> uh, yeah I for, yeah uh, they brought in mike today for this or as dusty called him iron michael yeah. <laughs> you got that but like, um i'm michael, michael today so where I thought this was good for Ray is like so Malenko did like dominate most of the match, but you kind of got a taste of what Ray can do. But I think what really helped was Malenko had to cheat to beat him. Here's where I'm gonna argue with you, and this is more on a principle thing than it is a specific case, because it ended up working out for Ray. You know, he got over like crazy, right? But. I'm of the opinion that when you debut someone on your roster, you let them do all the cool stuff they can do. And then you let them, uh, you know, you give them a win because it's their first one out. It's kind of like whenever um, TNA got the contract to work on, you know, their first time they were on uh, TNN, I think. And so one of the things they did is they just let AJ Styles go out and have a a squash match and just do all of his really cool stuff. That's what I think that someone's debut on a roster ought to be like is you go out there, you establish them, and you give people a reason to care about them. And the problem I have here is Ray goes out there and he gets to do some of his stuff, but really it just kind of seems like Malenko just pins him down for a lot of the match. And then if you were to do that with anybody other than Ray, because, you know, it's Ray, then it's like you're just killing him straight out of the gate. Um, You know, it's your debut match, so we're going to put you down on the mat and we're going to, like, have this guy sit on you for a while and you'll get to do a little bit of your stuff and then he's going to beat you. On principle, I just, that's not something I can get behind. Yeah, but it's also a championship match. And, I mean, at this time, I mean, cruiserweight belt actually meant something. And so he did. I would yeah. argue that with the exception of when uh, Six held the cruiserweight title, it usually meant something in WCW. It was just yeah. kind of in its own little world. So there's the other problem. Why are you debuting him directly into a title match? I wouldn't do that. You put him out there with someone who... You know, he can do his cool stuff with, and then you can say, well, you know, the championship committee 
thinks that is really impressed by what he's done. So then you can start it and put him out there with Malenko. And you could have the exact same match. You probably get the exact same outcome, except people are looking at it wondering, it's like, you know, if Ray gets loose and gets a hold of him, what could happen? See, I think, I think it, I think Ray is a special circumstance where it helped him. But if you look at his big matches in um, 96, like when they get, when you get to World War Three and Ultimo Dragon, which that one's a really good uh, match you should check out. But it's essentially Ultimo Dragon doing something similar where he pretty much just does his thing to Ray for 15 minutes and then Ray gets like his hope spots before Dragon pins him. Like I think, I think it helped to build sympathy for Ray because you have this obviously very very small guy and he gets he gets hurt early in the match and so you know this obviously bigger super technical wrestler that you've built as the top of the division is just grinding him into the dirt and this little tiny guy through all of that manages to fight his way back to the point where the bigger probably tougher more experienced more technical wrestler then can only beat him by cheating like i think it made i think it made i think it made i think someone watching at the time would be like wow that guy did some cool stuff and you know they had you know malenko had to use the ropes to beat him like that guy was you know i might want to pay attention to what that guy does now i think what you'd have to do is then have him come out on nitro and beat someone to follow it up but well what i was going to say is the difference between what you were saying between this and the ultimo dragon match is by the time you get to the ultimo dragon match ray's established so if you start telling that story then cool but i am not a fan of doing that right out of the gate and and i think if you put this in tandem with the um psychosis match from bash at the beach it's a good it's a good dual like pay-per-view appearances for him okay well, I, th- I guess we'll just agree to disagree on it. But Matt, what do you think? I'm gonna be Switzerland. I'm not gonna get in the middle of this. <laughs> um, no, I, I actually really enjoyed the match. Um, it was different. It, I, I I feel like I mean I've seen this match before. I just I had forgotten about it. Um, I appreciated it. I I mean Ray would obviously go on to have really a lot better matches. Um, but I thought this was. I didn't enjoy it as um, as much as I did a couple of the other matches on the show, but um, this was a really solid match. So, um, just kind of goes along with this card. This card was a this this card from top to bottom was pretty good. His his match with Psychosis from the next pay per view Bash at the Beach is really good. Yeah, it's better than this one. I do recall that. And I don't even think that's his best match I've seen with Psychosis because the Super J Cup '95 I thought was a lot better. Mm. And they did like an exhibition there, but um, that's for another time. All right, next match on the card was the aforementioned uh, Big Bubba Rogers versus John Tenta. Now this had a odd backstory to it. This is, John Tenta had left the WWF as Earthquake, and he came in and he was brought into the Dungeon of Doom, no, that he, was operated. It, what, he, he was Avalanche for a while, 
And then, was he Avalanche? Oh, yeah. oh yes. then they, I forgot. And then, like, they... Because then they brought him into um, the Dungeon of Doom as Shark. Yes, he was in there as Shark. And if you, if you want to watch on make... YouTube, you can see all the members of the Dungeon of Doom debuting with... Um, um, King Curtis Iakea doing some yapping. It's weird because here's the thing. I don't know why they felt like they couldn't keep using the Avalanche name because it's too close to Earthquake, right? Okay, fine. But you've got this dude, this big dude. Like John Tent is like, what, six foot seven or something? He's a huge dude. And then you're like, well, we're going to make you into the shark. Tenta committed to it so much that the he had a tattoo on his arm for, that was a tiger because he went to LSU. He had it reworked into a shark, and then a couple of months later, they have him drop the gimmick. And he comes out, and he's kind of got the Hogan skullet going, and half of it's cut off because, you know, the Dungeon of Doom had done that to him, or Big Bubba did it to him, whichever. Jimmy Hart's managing, like, half the people on this card. Um... So they had done that. So they go out there and they have this match. And you get a sense, like Ray Trailer's a big dude, but you look at, you get a sense for just how big John Tenta is if for some reason you've forgotten. And it's not a long match. Um, you know, Big Bubba kind of, you know, he, he gets some serious heat going on John Tenta and then John Tenta comes back and starts laying into him a little bit and uh, it ends with John Tenta basically just pulling a power slam. I, I think. I thought he like fell on him or something. I don't know. I kind of I kind of lost consciousness during part of this match. <laughs> it was not a good match. It wasn't a good match. It was short, um, at least. It was short. John Tenta didn't get to do a whole lot, and it was weird to me because, like you know, like you know, Tenta can can work but he just didn't get to do a whole lot but at the end of the match big bubba went for something and john tenta caught him and then just kind of turned it into a power slam for the pin i feel Um, bad for tenta because like he he just got stuck with that load typhoon for so long in the wwf did they win the tag titles as the natural disasters they did They beat. I needed a refresher. I think they beat Money Inc. Hmm. I, I think they lost it back to Money Inc. Too. Yeah, I don't know how long they had him though, but you know he was, he was a good worker. Like his stuff in All Japan was pretty good, and I thought like his early WWF stuff was pretty good. But man, like that natural disaster thing was not like great. It seems like it would be a good fit. But and then like poor Uncle Fred and they kind of went like they kind of did that sumo thing with Yokozuna that wasn't very good, which I don't think was a great use. Well, I mean, John Tenta was apparently like a legit sumo dude, too. But yeah, that's that's, um, there's his um his sumo status is what caused that um, shit show at that SWS match with um. Uh, what was his name? Katawa or something? Yeah. You're going to have to refresh my memory on this one. So they, they did like a WWE, like the WWE would work with SWS, which was um, Tenryu's company before he started war. 
Yeah, it's okay. kind of a short-lived promotion, but there's um, I, I'm sure you could still probably find it now. But back in the good old days of like tape trading, um, mm-hmm. that was kind of like a gem that you could potentially collect. They, I know the WWF in the early '90s was it like '91, '92. They did at least two sh- shows with SWS where a ton of WWF talent worked yeah. the show, and it's. And, it's- it's, it's really cool, weird uses of them too. It's like it's like Warlord like teaming up with like Randy Savage and stuff. Like really bizarre. Like it's really worth seeing just for like the bizarre pairings. Yeah, yeah. But it was cool because it's. I mean, back in the day, like you didn't get exposure to a lot of Japanese wrestling, so it's it's guys that you know working against Japanese stars that you don't know. But it was kind of a really interesting pairing. So then. Um, so this guy that he was wrestling had um, gotten kicked out of sumo, I think, because for being an ass, pretty much. Mm-hmm. So they're doing this match, and this guy just will not cooperate with him. And I think Ten, Ten is yelling at him like this is wrestling. And then I think it ends up with like this guy like throwing a table in the ring, and then I think he like legit punches the ref. And it's like ten minutes, and it's just like an absolute disaster with them maybe like locking up like once or twice, and then like slapping at each other. Mm-hmm. and it's mm. i think the clip's out there because i think it's on youtube if you look yeah. up like um sws like john tennis shoot you'll see it but i mean it's just a but so um the theory i had read behind why this happened was this guy was a higher level sumo than tenta and it was just pretty much like a dick waving contest for him uh-huh. and he was just an ass in general Okay, I, I, I pulled Tenta's Wikipedia real quick, and the guy's name was Koji Kateo. Yeah. Um, yeah. After the match, Kateo grabbed the microphone and began telling the audience wrestling is fake, and Tenta could never really beat him, as other wrestlers tried to restrain him. And the incident led to him being fired. Yeah, okay, I forgot about that part, but yeah. So his wrestling career did not last long. No. Um, apparently Tenta also said that sumo was like prior to getting into professional wrestling was like the toughest, most, uh, hard on your body thing he had done. Cause he like played college football and college wrestling and stuff. So I actually, um, this is, this is going to be a weird aside. So, um, one of the things I've been kind of like toying with the idea of doing on our network feed is like doing an all Japan, um, history podcast. Mm-hmm. So part of that was getting into like Ricky Dozen and like sumo. So I did some, I did some. I've kind of researched sumo a bit because I've watched it before, but I don't know a lot about it. So it's actually kind of fallen far out of favor in Japan like the last decade. Okay. So um, they found out. I think the yakuza were fixing matches, and mm. then a teacher beat one of his students to death, and they were saying generally. The same thing's kind of happening to sumo that's happening to boxing in America, where, like, um, native Japanese talent is not rising to the top, so they're Mm -hmm. losing interest because they don't have, like, people of their own um, national origin in it. So, um, it was kind of an interesting read um, that has nothing to do with this, but I thought it was interesting to read kind of about, like, the downfall of the sport and how it it's a little kind of similar to boxing's downfall in the United States. Right. Well, that's, well, in any event, the, uh, the match was short. 
Tenta wins with a power slam. He takes a pair of scissors at Jimmy Hardman waving around and cuts off part of Bubba's beard. And, you know, the match happened. I have to say, he was kind of a scary guy with half his head shaved. It, you know, apparently Tenta was a legit, like, six five and a half. That's a big dude. I'm six three, and for someone to be Tenta's side, I, you know, I look at that, and I'm like, that's a big dude. Because he's not just tall, but he's broad. It's that really, also, it's it's it makes me so sad that he died as young as he did. Yeah, yeah. Said he had uh, stomach cancer, I think. Yeah. I remember that from um, I was reading WrestleCrap at the time, and they'd kind of built a relationship with him. And stupid goddamn Russo, why would you bring him back with a mask and tennis balls in the mask? <laughs> We're gonna talk about that someday. We're gonna we're gonna talk about yeah the oddities and um fun fun John Tenta factoid is when Piper was picking his team for Uncensored '97 yeah Tenta came out as a surprise and got quite the pop for doing it yeah uh, I remember I remember um, reading about that all right the next match on the card is we didn't lie to you folks we told you. Hold on, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull something up here. All right. <laughs> yep. I won't do the Ron and Fred joke this time. <laughs> Head up, fuss. Yeah, that was that was the that's the best thing that the. Uh, that came, he has ever done. He came uh, out the of the Sharon whole Osborne audience. fight was pretty fun. <laughs> that was that was a pretty good entrance uh, for them. That was in any event. Um, the next this one up Cartman is one of the. <laughs> I remember him opening the package and getting that out. Uh, the next match on the card is really one of the more historic ones. It features Kevin Sullivan as the Taskmaster up against He Who Shall Not Be Named. So, you know what Someone's was awesome? having fun with Wikipedia here. You know what was awesome about this match? Is that Sullivan doesn't even get to the ring and Benoit just like comes out and attacks him. This was during their like legit hit with heat with each other, wasn't it? Um mm-hmm. No, not yet, because Sullivan's talked about this and like um Benoit wanted to do something. I think he wanted to dunk his head in the toilet or something, and Sullivan said no, not now, because he didn't okay. want to like ruin what the match is going for, and Benoit didn't do it. There, um, that what that you can clearly see that spot when they're in the bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. But, oh um, yeah, over by the over by there, the urinals. There's one spot that made me super uncomfortable in this match, and Matt knows what I'm going to talk about. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, well, Let's set it up. This this match, obviously, for those who have never seen um, this match, it, this match actually is worth going out of your way to see, even if you don't want to watch the entire pay per view. This is this um, is prototypic. This is like the prototype for crowd brawls in the WWF from like '98 to like 2001. Yeah, yeah, and I I wrote that down in my notes that this this was very like innovative. It was kind of like groundbreaking. It was it. It was that brawl before that brawl be- later became contrived because they, right. they did it too much or it, it wasn't new anymore. But it's Kevin Sullivan versus Chris Benoit. 
Um, I know some people at home may be conflicted. Maybe they don't ever want to watch a a Ben watch a Ben Ben Wah match again, um, mm-hmm. which is fine. That's a reasonable um, perspective to have. Uh, I can still watch his matches. Um, I guess I kind of separate the work that he did uh, from you know, the horrific actions that he later did. But this is the, the first Benoit match I've watched since the murders happened where I wasn't uncomfortable. So it took me 11 years. It's yeah. the first match I've seen of, of him doing in a long time. Um, it's, he didn't do the cross face. That's usually what makes me uncomfortable with his matches. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's Sullivan versus Benoit. I forgot exactly how this feud began. I, I think generally Sullivan was feuding with the four horsemen. Um, but I forget exactly how these two started fighting. Uh, yeah, I don't remember. Um, I don't, I don't remember this era very well up until 97 is really where I started watching. I was watching during this period, but I, I, I do kind of memory kind of fades me on this particular. From uh, what I understand. Okay. Just reading real quick. The, it started out the dungeon feuded with the horsemen and then they started working together to try and take out Hogan. And then they switched to, they, it went back to um, them being at odds with each other. Oh, is this where, um, is this where they put Hogan out because Arn spiked Hogan in the eye with Sherry Martell's shoe? I don't I remember. I think that was a little bit before that. Okay. But um, there there is a favorite line of Dusty's from this is, there's a woman in the commode, Tony! Oh, yeah. There's a woman in the man's room, Tony! There's I a just, woman there's a woman in the man's room, Tony! Yeah. What is this? What is this? What is this? WCW, wow, daddy! Yeah. I like that they didn't tell people this is going to happen. You have people, like, fleeing because they were trying to take a piss and these two wrestlers <laughs> just, like... I noticed that there's one thing that I noticed. Um, so the match starts with them just, just, it starts with a crazy brawl and they go almost immediately into the stands. And unlike most other wild kind of around the arena brawls that you see, they choose to go up the stairs. They go up yep. the stairs and then immediately start fighting in the bathroom. And one of the things that I noticed and I became somewhat obsessed with given the context of it they're fighting. They start throwing each other into the stalls. One of the bathroom stalls is clearly closed. <laughs> so yeah. so there was some dude. there taking a shit while these two wrestlers are just pounding the shit out of each other. And if that leads to uh, the, the spot, spot that you became comfortable yeah. with. And I did too. Yeah. Yeah. Count me in on that as well. So, so pretty much Sullivan puts Benoit's head in like one of the stalls and i mean so benoit did this to him later but he did on a short sullivan legitimately like slams his head in the door and not nicely and i mean we're talking it was probably door on like would you say like his jaw and like the side of his head yeah i would have thought it 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 looked like it made an impact like right behind his ear yeah I, i was just like oh my god like i i i all like you know when you you know like I winced like I was just like oh my god no, I don't it, know if I can keep watching this. I think I yeah. audibly like made a noise. I was probably like oh because it it it's it was bad. I mean it wasn't 
and it also it wasn't worked. I mean, he slammed it. It wasn't worked like yeah, you could maybe like work it where you you're holding on to the door and you're like slamming it, but in really out like reality, you're kind of like you're yeah. using your hand to brace the brace it or kind of slow the momentum or, and just make it. He or, just I could I could he's chucking the door at Benoit's head. Yeah, I, think, I could work slamming a, slamming a door like that, but he he probably could, but he didn't. I would also say the way Benoit did it was better because if they hadn't have done that, his would have looked fine where he kind of got like, he kind of wedged Sullivan's shoulder in there. So he was like getting it like on his shoulder blade and it kind of looked like he slammed his head, but it wasn't. Yeah. But. And and the other thing I liked about this was um, they weren't just slamming each other into things. Like sometimes they would just stop and they would just punch each other. Mm -hmm. And like they were they weren't like wrestling punches like they were just like. I'm gonna. I'm just like throwing as many punches as I can at you. Yeah. Um. Yeah. They. I mean, they were unloading. And I also like. I'm looking at the time of this match. It was nine minutes and fifty eight seconds, which I think is perfect for this length, like for this kind of match. Yeah. Yeah. It was um, just a wild, crazy brawl. And the finish was great too, because like. Um, yes. Like, yeah. I don't think I've seen anybody else do that. But, but you know what else I liked about this? I like that he pins him and he gets up and he doesn't celebrate or anything. He just starts smacking Sullivan like while he's pretty much unconscious. Yeah. The uh, Just for the record, the finish is a superplex variant, but I want you to go watch them. You know, I want you listeners to go see this for yourself. One thing that bugged me is that in watching this match, Sullivan's gear kind of took me out of it. It didn't. It didn't so much look like wrestler gear to me. It just. It, he's still kind of doing the wizard thing, isn't he? No, he's just wearing. He's wearing red boots and. Oh yeah. Uh, yellow trunks, and there's no pads anywhere. There's no wrist tape. It's, and he's got like the the weird bolts drawn on his face and black marker. And Matt's just, cat look, obviously has uh, strong opinions on. That's not match. Matt's cat. That is that is my cat. Um. The Maleficent uh, Pips Meowsherschmidt, first of her name. Um, and for some reason, she really wants to be a part of this. Is she a Benoit or a Sullivan fan? Or does she just like WCW? Uh, she likes hardcore matches. Ah, okay, got it. I'm surprised that you guys... You might may have heard my cat earlier. I'm, I'm surprised if you didn't. She She's very... Uh, she wanted attention, so she crawled to my lap to get pets uh, my wife and i did a hockey podcast for a couple years and legitimately every episode i had to edit the dog out at some point <laughs> and as but, uh, i as i speak like my cat must have heard because she's not crawling in my lap so the one thing that surprised me about this though was how over benoit was oh he was very over yeah this was kind of i guess i mean he got over he i mean he was over it it really over at certain points but this was kind of a I feel at the beginning of that where he's really starting to get hot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, so the post-match, Arn comes out like he's trying to stop Benoit. And then, I mean, you know it's coming. So then he just starts stomping away at Sullivan and Benoit joins in. The crowd legitimately is going insane for this. Yeah. Because it's the horseman. 
Um, if I was grading this as a match, I don't know if I'd give it five stars. I might give it, if I was giving out snowflakes, I'd probably give it like four and a half, maybe four and three fourths. I think four and a half is a pretty good spot for it. But this is, if you've never seen this before, it is phenomenal. It It is historic because it became the template that so much other stuff got based on. And, and they showed the, like they showed clips of this on TV for years. Like, mm-hmm. This is how big it was. Yeah, yeah, it's a big deal. Okay, the next one, the next match on the card, was Sting versus Lord Stephen Regal. So this, the build uh, on this was kind of odd. I didn't, I didn't dig the promo with him and Mean Gene where they were kind of like intimating that um, Regal was gay. That was weird. Yeah, it kind of seemed to me that they didn't really have a whole lot of material to work with. So it's just like, uh, just, you know, call him a sissy boy. Well, it was it was weird because um, I felt like, I can't remember now, one of the, like, I think it was Mean Gene kind of tried to, like, keep it in the middle and Sting was, like, going full bore. I felt like Sting was in – he was trying to cut a good promo, but he wasn't exactly comfortable with how he was doing yeah. it. Yeah. So it's it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, go out there and, and cut a promo and, and call real gay and that you're going to teach him a lesson. And Sting's like, ah. Sting – I think Sting – it felt like Sting wanted to go more with like you're a, a teetotaler is kind of like where I felt he wanted to go and – they didn't want him to go there. It was, it was it was a weird promo. Yeah. So um, my first impression of this is Sting is massively over. <laughs> okay, in WCW though, Sting was always massively over. I mean, more so than anything else on the show to this point, with a hot oh, crowd well, like he got. That's true. That's true. He got like a next level pop. He was very over here, and an interesting thing is that this was a uh, this was in Baltimore, so it's not as if they were even in the, like their usual stomp, stomping grounds down south. I think sometimes I forget because this is kind of like what I consider the tail end of Prime Sting. You forget like what a force of nature he was. Mm-hmm. Because so after this, I had to go watch the um, the Sting Vader matches just because those are awesome. Yeah, I need to revisit those. Yeah, they're they're great. But um, what I liked about this is this match was kind of like Regal. It's pretty much Regal trying to control a monster, and the monster eventually like getting the better of him. Breaks yeah, loose. Regal. So this uh, this kind of made me sad in a sense because I feel like this was kind of like near the tail end of Regal's. Um competency here i mean he, he they didn't really do a whole lot with him you know really he has, um from early nxt there's um steven regal versus chris hero is really good oh no regal is a tremendous worker like i yeah, i was yeah. sad i was very sad when he had to retire because of i think of the the neck injury and he had surgery on his neck um but he he was a tremendous worker i remember i don't know if you recall this but in like the late 2000s when they were going to give him like another like one last main event run um, but then he got popped. He got popped yeah. for, like, for steroids or something, uh, and that, that kind yeah. of put the kibosh in that. But I felt like that that would have been like tremendous. Like obviously they 
long term they weren't planning on going with him but one like main event run or even putting like the title on him for a short term even as like a transition champion would have been awesome but Didn't he, he was win, like the icy title and the king of the ring real close together and then they had this yeah him. yeah yeah and then they cooled it I think this yeah, is like... there's there, there's a great shot. I don't know if you can find it. I mean, it might be on YouTube, but when he won like King of the Ring or something like that, or maybe it was when he was like general manager or something, and he like they had him close out Raw by like shutting everything down. But I think it may have been King of the Ring. There's a shot of him just like sitting, and he has this like evil scowl on his face, and he looks so sinister. Mm-hmm. It's tremendous, and I was so excited. And then, literally, like a week later, he got popped for steroids, and it all went to shit. But yeah, this is—I think this is—if I'm remembering this right, like this is kind of—I think towards—I think what you're saying this is towards the tail end before he really starts struggling. Like he starts getting overweight, and you know the drug yeah, problems start. Yeah, but they also just—they didn't really do much with him. Um, no. I can't—I think maybe the Blue Bloods was before this, or that was '95. Yeah, uh, so they didn't really, they were already kind of like running out of things I, to do with him, but they didn't really do much with him past this. I think at this point he was mostly I, all, even like on Saturday Night Live or Saturday Night, um, Saturday Night Live, so Saturday Night, uh, WCW Saturday Night or Worldwide. I, I have a very soft spot in, my, spot in my heart for the vignettes of Regal teaching Bobby Eaton how oh. to be a blue blood. <laughs> So, what was it? Uh, Sir Robert Earl of Eaton? Yeah. yeah. Like, he yeah. takes him to the restaurant Earl, and the waiter offers. Yeah, yeah. Like, when, um, my favorite is him taking Eaton to the restaurant and the waiter offering to throw him out. And then he's, like, blowing his <laughs> nose on the napkin and stuff. Yeah. Bobby Eaton's really underrated. Yes. Bobby Eaton's. God, I got. Okay. I know you guys have heard this story, but I'll go ahead and, and tell it for the listeners. My first night in the business, I was sitting in the heel locker room, and Bobby Eaton sat down next to me. And in my head, um, if you ever watch Scrubs, and it's that thing where JD's sitting there, like keeping a calm face, but you hear in his head screaming, yeah, that was me. And that's when I decided on my my policy of be cool, don't mark out in front of people you're a fan of. So, um, yeah, Bobby Eaton, God, he's class act. I think, um, I think it's a testament to how nice of a person he was that he literally had a job with WCW almost until the end because they just liked having him around. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that's and, and that's this Bobby. Is, if you are a young person listening to this, he is a testament to why being a nice guy on the job is the best policy sometimes because oh, yeah. it can help you keep your job. Uh-huh. Um, what I wanted to say from watching this match, um, the match is really well paced. You know, yeah. it's it's got, you know, Regal, Regal take, takes control of it a little way in. And so Sting is getting his hope spots to get up and do stuff. And then Regal's taking it back. And here's the thing. They keep the crowd engaged, and they know how to pause. Okay, my cat's starting to mess with the bag that's causing background noise. My apologies. Oh, you're fine. Um, They pause just long enough to build the heat, but they don't stay paused long enough that it's like, oh, they're they're pausing for people to cheer. They they give it just enough of a break for people to be fired up for it and anticipate what's going to happen. It's really good back and forth. Yeah, and that's 
I was really I found that very fascinating about the match because if you actually watch the match, it's Regal is in control probably like ninety percent of the match, mm-hmm. and he's doing he actually did a ton of things that were really really cool that I love like both intense things like there were moments where he he threw like a really awesome drop kick mm-hmm. um then he he started doing like elbows to the head the yeah. european uppercuts um whenever he he did that thing that he always did which i loved is that whenever he um whenever he would cover the guy in this case sting he'd put his forearm over the bridge of the nose and just like grind it in yeah, grinded in the face, and he did a lot of uh, kind of more subtle heel things. Like I, there was one spot that I marked for, where he like hits Sting, and Sting is kind of like stunned, and he's like, um, I think like kneeling down or something like that. And Regal just takes his boots and he just stomps his, uh, Sting's fingers, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like such a like a really like nasty shitty heel thing. But it, it was tremendous, like twisting the fingers. He did tons of things in this match, which were just awesome. He did a fantastic performance. Yeah. You know, no one really does that. Um, I'm going to call it roughneck. Those little roughneck heel things anymore. Yeah. I, I tried to do that when I was a heel. Um, it's It's something that not a lot of people notice or take note of. But, yeah, it's something I tried to remember to do. I oh. always, I always love, um, I always love going for the hand though, like um, oh yeah, there was um, it was from CWF Mid Atlantic earlier this year. It was a first blood match, and they were setting up all these chairs. And at one point, um, the heel just stops, and he just, it might have been Trevor Lee though. Someone had a chair, and they just took a moment and they just jammed it right on the guy's hand that was prone. Mm-hmm. And it was just, I love little touches like that in matches. The um, two other takeaways that I had uh, in this match was the fact that, um, first of all, I forgot what I had forgotten what kind of vertical leap Sting had. I was about to say he got he had some air on that splash. The story I had heard was that before and after every match, Sting would do a hundred free squats. I totally believe it. Um. The other thing that I took away, this was the the only thing in this match that, that kind of struck me as out of place, is that Regal gave up on the Regal stretch, you know, out of frustration because Sting wouldn't tap to it. The Regal stretch was, it looked horribly painful and everything, but there's no way to work it to let anybody move. Once you put that on, you're just kind of stuck in place, so you don't have a good way out of it. Um, but you know, God, it's just a good match. Both guys are doing good work, mm-hmm. you know, and fun to watch. Um, the finish, like you didn't see a stinger splash in this match at all, but sting had, I don't remember what he did to set it up into the scorpion death lock, but it just, all of a sudden sting does something and reels on his back and sings like, going for it now and he just hooks it in and moves him real quick to go into the finish and it just it fit because he's like I've got the opportunity I'm going for it and he gets the win with it 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 doesn't exactly come out of nowhere but it's really sudden and it works you know what freaked me out about this match was um seeing brunette surfer's thing 
Oh yeah, this was uh, yeah. He still had he had the he was on that run where he had the dark hair, um, but before he would depart and you know go full on uh, crow sting. Yeah, yeah. It was um, it was a really good match. I enjoyed it a lot. Did he um he did the he did the um he did the Hulk up I think before he got this. I'm trying yeah, to it was and it was awesome. Mm-hmm. I, I admit to blatantly ripping off Sting style of hulking up a time or two. Um, the the one that springs to mind is I was doing an outdoor show, and the guy's been working at me, and he can't beat me, so he, he goes and he stands me up and he puts me in the corner and he does a chop, and I look at him like I get the the super intense eyes, and he goes and he chops me again, and I kind of stand there and I take a step out and he kind of looks up at me. And he goes to, he does one more chop, and then I'll just look at him and I kind of flex my arms. Ah! And he starts backing up, and I run over him and just, you know, feed it into putting the ankle lock on him. But, God, you wouldn't have thought a whole bunch of people just out on the street in the middle of their local festival would flip out over that. But, God, they loved it. I think I have a picture of that somewhere. My favorite one that he ever did was that rematch with Hogan on Nitro, where. He did the Hulk up, and then he that's all he had, and Hogan's, like, prone, and he just collapses, and he headbutts Hogan right in the dick. And Sting's, like, <laughs> passed out, and, like, Hogan's, like, almost, like, curly, like, shuffling on the ground, like, screaming. I don't remember that. It was right after oh, he won man. the championship. That, that, that still pisses me off, because it was before Thunder, like, they, um... They do the rematch, and then they do the, we gotta go, and it's Stinger, like, giving him the splash right as the TV goes off the air, and they wouldn't fucking tell you what happened until the next Nitro. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I hated them sometimes so much. Yeah, but it got you to tune back in, didn't it? Yes, but they wouldn't tell you on Saturday night. It was such a ripoff. Yeah, that's that's fair. Um. Okay, so the next match on the card, I think we can all say that Sting Regal was a hell of a good match. Yeah. Um, the next match on the card was a. Uh, it was the tag match. It was the NFL versus um, Horseman. So you had Ric Flair and Arn Anderson against Kevin Green and Steve Mongo McMichael. Um, Matt, why don't you take the lead on this one? This match wound up being kind of more fun than I thought it would be. Um, first off, I'm going to say it, it, I had, I, I had a moment of sadness earlier, um, in the pay-per-view. Um, and now I have a moment of sadness with sadness with this match. Um, because it's kind of one of the last real performances by Arn. Um, I can't think of another big pay-per-view match. I think he did after this. I'm drawing a blank. I don't know if you guys. Um, uh, I can look. Was he in the War Games? I think the War Games is after he handed his spot over to Hennig. Yeah, yeah, and it, I well, War Games '97 was Henning. Henning was in that one. War Games '96 was ooh, that was the whole NWO sting, um, kind of debacle, but. Um, I know he does some matches in 97 up until February. Yeah, he still wrestled for a little bit, but I think this was kind of like his last 
really big high profile match, I think. Um, I can't. I'm kind of I'm kind of scrolling. I, I'll talk to fill the time right now, but um, I would I really enjoyed this. Like I'd almost classify this as a good match. I kind of feel I, I would probably give it that too. Um, the one thing I didn't like they had they had Bobby Heenan there as the what a coach or a special consultant or something like that. He was the because Macho was the coach for the. Yeah, guys. and the, he had he had done some kind of entertaining or interesting promo work before that, but when it came down to it, like he he didn't do anything in the match, and I know that this was at the point where his neck and his body was all just like beat up, so he wasn't going to get physically involved, but he didn't even really do much, just hanging out. Yeah, Art Anderson was in the '96 War Games. Oh, okay. And he fought Lex Luger at Halloween Havoc. Oh, I clearly blank on this, so... Um, he's probably in World War Three. He was kind of wrapping up his in-ring yeah. career, though, because, I mean, he'd been, he had a lot of injuries and, and just years of being beat up, but... Um, well, I, I Jericho love wrestled Nick Patrick at World War Three. I don't remember that. I think that was... Was that I when... I think that was when Nick Patrick was doing his heel gimmick. Evil, evil referee Nick Patrick? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I yeah, I kind of like this match. Like Mongo was not great, but um, he wasn't he's better era. than Kevin Green. He was better than Kevin Green. Although I did appreciate, like Kevin Green was very like energetic. He first off, he was in great shape. He was like jacked for this mm-hmm. match. There was a uh, certain. Oh, I'll get into it. Go ahead and say what you're gonna say. Well, I was. Yeah, I mean, he was. He was at least energetic. He was. He was very limited, but you could tell that he was excited to be out there, and he wasn't like half-assing it. Like he was putting his heart into whatever he was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, there was some problems though with it. Um, I, I thought like the, remember they did like the double figure four spot that, that popped the crowd, but then they went way too long with it. Um, I thought the match itself went way too long. Um, and, and again, like they, Kevin green was way too long on the figure four. Like it, it almost like killed the move. Uh, his mustache bothered me. <laughs> I <laughs> was a, it's a weird uh, complaint, but he had that weird like creepy blonde mustache. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a sp- there was two things in this match that I really enjoy. I got a big kick out of. They're kind of just the sides, um, but one was from Flair where he suckered Kevin Green into like dropping his head, and then when he did, he just like booted him right in the face. <laughs> I love that. That was like such a little heel mood, but it was it was awesome. And then the second thing was a dusty moment on commentary when uh, when Kevin Green's wife and Deborah McMichael were run off by Miss Elizabeth and woman, and Dusty got a chance to bust out his devilish woman. Yes, it was out of place. Devilish woman, Tony. I I I told my wife because she she watched. She came in for this part of it. I'm like, they should have just set the chihuahua loose on him. <laughs> so uh, I, what I liked about this is they, they didn't have um, Mongo and Green out wrestle them. Like they stuck to basic, like just overpowering them. And mm-hmm. then I liked that Flair and Arn would sucker them into something and get the advantage. But I thought um, Kevin Green had a lot of energy. But he was really awkward in the ring. Like Mongo was much more natural 
in the ring. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how to describe it. Like, there's just something about him. Like, he felt like he felt like he kind of belonged in there, and Kevin Green felt like he didn't. Kevin Green felt like a special guest. Yeah, and Mongo, there was like, I mean, I, I'm sure he had more training at this point because he he starts wrestling. But mm-hmm. um, I thought he I thought he looked okay, and I will say um, Mongo is an underrated horseman. Um, that's, that leads actually into, I really enjoyed the finish on this because all of a sudden here come, you know, here come the three women walking down the aisle together and you're like, whoa, 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 what's up? What's up here? And then, um, they come up and, you know, they come up with the Halliburton and they go to Mongo and they're, they open it up and there's a horseman shirt and then stacks, stacks of cash. And, uh. You know, Mongo's looking at it, and he, you know, he ends up taking it and and blasting Green in the face with the Halliburton case. You know, my which... wife, my wife lost her shit when Mongo takes one of the hundred dollar bills, just a random hundred dollar bill, and like holds it up to the light, like he's trying to tell if it's counterfeit or not. But that totally makes sense. Consider who the horsemen are. Yeah, but how's he gonna know if a hundred's fake? Really. Was that the point when they'd started putting the watermarks in them? I think so, because he held it up. Yeah. Yeah, it must have been. So he's like, he's like, oh, look at the... And he looks at it, and he goes, okay. And then, you know, he, he goes full bore with the horseman. He's like, nope, with him entirely. And that explains, because for a long time, I didn't know why in the hell he carried around a Halliburton suitcase. <laughs> you know? I- yeah, I appreciated this because in in the grand context of wrestling uh, swerves or, or turns, I guess I should say, this made the most logical sense. Yeah. Like you're wrestling a match against someone and then the, 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 yeah, the opposing team's like, hey, you know, uh, join us for like an entire suitcase full of cash. I'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes perfect logical sense. It, Look, not Kevin, only that, but it also. Kevin, I got to turn. I got to turn on you. They gave me a hundred thousand dollars. I I have to also comment on this match. So I've never been um, never been a big fan of Deborah McMichael. Never kind of got why people thought she was hot. She's kind of hot in this match. <laughs> I like I'm, her her obvious um, because I always thought she was kind of a butterface and um. She was. I think I always thought she was more attractive in WCW in general, though. Yeah, I never, I never got the appeal either. Well, I, it's kind of she's, a. She's never. She was never like Sable level bad, but um, I thought, I thought as far as her, her in general, I, I thought she was, especially when she had like the Bears jacket on. I thought that was the best she looked. But, um, I can see that. the The other thing I liked about the uh, about the uh, the buying them off thing is like we think that you're worth this much for you to join us, and then Mongo's like they think I'm worth a lot, you know, I'm, and that that totally makes sense why he he buys in so completely immediately. Well, I like that they used his wife to relay the information too. Yeah, yeah. That was... And she was probably like, hey, you can get me this, you know, you can get me these things I want, like, take the money. Yeah, it, it was it was just a really good heel turn. 
it was really I really enjoyed it. And you you now have your four horsemen, which I actually think this um incarnation of them is pretty decent, like better than the Paul Roma era at least. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there's no question. There's no question about that. So then um this is we have a pretty famous segment which I was actually surprised cuz I couldn't remember when this happened. I thought this might have happened on a Clash of the Champions. The um which segment are we to? Oh, oh yeah, the um the Yeah, so so Bischoff comes out and he calls um so they've been kind of what have they been calling it the hostile takeover? Something to that effect. So um he calls out um Kevin Nash and Scott Hall. And um, he actually says the WWF by name, which kind of surprised me. But, yeah. you know, their stupid network has to edit that out because... They just edit out the last letter. Yeah, because they can't... I don't know why they can't make some um, some agreement with the WWF to use... At least like, let them say it. Acknowledge each other. Yeah. So, um... Nash and Hall come out, which is really bizarre if you've watched, like, 97 when they've kind of ditched their WWE characters because Scott Hall is, like, total Razor Ramon here. Yeah. And um, so they kind of go back and forth, and they set up the match for Bash at the Beach. And so I couldn't remember if this was going to happen or not, but Mm -hmm. it happens. It, It shocked me how quick this happened. So Hall pretty much hits him. And then Nash grabs him and power bombs him through at the table, like on the side of the stage. Yeah, and, and it yeah. was talk- not. There was no gimmick to the table at all. And we're talking though, like, like even if you know it's coming, it's shocking. Like it's it's what like five seconds for like all this to go down. Yeah. And it was really cool because today they would overdo it, but this was just like Scott Hall punches him, Nash just grabs him and power bombs him right through the table. Yeah. Off the stage, through through a table that doesn't have a crash pad or anything under it. And, and Bisch, Bischoff sells it like he's dead. Like they have um, they have the crew come out. Like Tony leaves the um, leaves the announcer booth to check on him, and Dusty like kind of goes on this monologue. Yeah. About it, which I didn't care for that too much. Uh. I don't know. It just didn't work in that situation. I don't think. Yeah. It. It. it well, I thought Dusty did okay. Um, it wasn't terrible. I just. I don't think it had the impact they were quite going for. It. Not quite the gravity. And but, even. Um. Even Luger checks on him when he comes out for his yeah, match. Yeah. He's. They're still doing that whenever Luger comes out for the main event. Yeah. So that's. Yeah. That. That was pretty good. Uh, Matt, anything? Yeah, I thought this was. I think I mentioned this when we were discussing the power bomb, but yeah, this was a this was really cool, and it kind of did nicely foreshadow things to come. Mm-hmm. Um, I did like how um, how Eric sold it like death. Yeah, like he he was all into it, which I appreciated. Yeah, Eric's really um, an underrated on air talent. Some people just hated him so, so much. I, I'm going to, after you get into the main event, I want to kind of get into 
WCW in this time and how I think Eric Bischoff doesn't get the credit he deserves for the coming years. Well, I have I have some pretty limited notes about the main event, which was Lex Luger, who at the time was television champion and half the tag champions was Sting, versus the Giant, who was the world heavyweight champion. After everything we've gotten to see on this show, this was... Honestly, um, to me, kind of a low point. Um, it did its job. The Giant was obviously still pretty green, and Luger fed the Giant a lot over the course of this. Um, but, you know, and, and so they're, they're having this match, and then you get, um, you get to the ending, and, like, Luger is trying to get the giant up for the torture rack and he can't do it. Like he, he gets him almost there and then drops him down because he couldn't get him all the way up. Cause John's been working on his back. It's fair play. Right. And then the giant's just like, well, chokeslam win. And you're like, uh, wait a second. What about the, are you just going to end the, Okay. I, they were kind of, it was to establish the giant as a monster at the time i liked how i liked the part where he got him like stuck on the top rope yeah and was just, just giving it to him and then he's just like oh well i might as well just try and torture rack him and it's like oh crap like i made a mistake well like they he put him up there so he wouldn't have to lift him all the way i thought that was that was a good touch matt this wasn't i mean i i, I get what you're saying that it, it uh it did its job um Given how otherwise good this show over was overall, like I don't know that this was the match to end with. But I mean, what are you going to do? It is the the championship match, so mm. I just didn't I thought, think it was. I didn't think it was great. Like there was a couple moments during it that I I thought were fine or were pretty good. Like that uh, the torture rack spot, like you mentioned, there was a cool spot where the the giant basically deadlifted Luger into a backbreaker. That was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I like I you know what I kind of felt uh, Giants choke slam was a little underappreciated. Like when he hit Luger with it, I was like, oh, that's actually pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty badass. Yeah. You, you know what I used to like is when they would have like they would put him in there on Nitro against like three job guys. Mm, yeah. Mm, yeah. It was always used to be fun, but I think this did a good job. It made the Giant look like an unstoppable monster. Yeah. Um, you know what this reminded me of? It's not as good as that, but it reminded me of when Kane started in the WWE and they are trying to get to Taker, so they put him in there with Vader. Yeah. And like, so Vader was like throwing everything he could at him, but it just wasn't enough, and then it just made Kane look like a bigger monster. That this is kind of like a lesser version of that because um, the giant wasn't as capable at this point, but that's kind of what it reminded me of. Oh, that's fair. That's fair. One thing I kind of feel about this match, I know they were trying to get Giant over, but given essentially what happened, uh, with two months later, you have Hogan winning the, the belt from Giant um, to go on the whole heel run as champion when he's with the NWO. Mm-hmm. I almost feel like in retrospect, it would have been it probably would have been more dramatic if Luger had won this and then 
just carried the championship for a couple months and then had you have Hogan beating him for it. Yeah, but then you would have lost you would have lost the ninety seven though. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it was a there, big deal for Luger to pick up the win. Yeah, remember how big that Nitro was where Luger beat him and like that crowd just losing their minds? Oh, and they were I think they did like they were spraying him with champagne back in the yeah. locker room because yeah. they thought that was still one of the best NWO. Yeah. It was like where he fought them all off and like that's still one of Tony's best calls. He kind of did it here though. He's like they're standing in Detroit. Mhm. Yeah. I remember that very well. And even like um Randy Anderson's like freaking out because Hogan tapped. Mhm. That was uh, that was a hell of a moment. It it was that was really cool. Yeah, they don't do good moments like that anymore. There's we can unpack that later. <laughs> so overall, what did you guys think of this show? I'm giving it an easy thumbs up. This was a really good show. Um, it's fun to watch. Yeah, I, easy thumbs up for me too. So, so kind of one of the things I wanted to talk about is um, there's there's kind of this revisionist history that Eric Bischoff only really had one good idea, and that was the NWO. But if you watch the show, you kind of see that that's false because at this point the NWO was only like. In its third or fourth week, yeah, Memorial Day to June sixteenth, it hadn't happened yet. So wait, but the the vibe you get from this is now if if you don't know your nineteen ninety six WCW history, so pretty much they came in, they ended ninety five and came into ninety six with Randy Savage and Ric Flair feuding, and that actually sparked interest in the company, mm-hmm. and so. You watch the show and what you you kind of see is like, wow, this is a promotion that really has some good momentum and is kind of hot right now. And the NWO is not even started yet. Yeah. So what I really saw was what you really see in 96 is you see this company starting to heat up. And right when it's about to explode, they just drop this hot angle that like – there was like nothing anyone had ever seen before right on top of it. Yeah. They, here's the thing. I cannot – someone who says that the only good idea Bischoff ever had was the NWO, I go like, then who signed all the cruiserweights? Yeah. That's a great point. And I guess he was just on his podcast, and it's timely, like a week or two ago, and he was talking about – and I mentioned this before is like the variety on this show. Like you have a hardcore brawl, you have a cruiserweight match, you have like a standard heavyweight match. That's yeah. Foley calls it the three ring circus. So if you don't like one thing, then you'll like, if you don't like the clowns, you'll like the elephants. If you don't like the elephants then you'll like the trapeze, that sort of stuff. Yeah. And Bishop Bischoff was just saying on his podcast is like, he wanted this variety. And I think it's um, I think it's something I really loved about those early days of WCW that I don't get anymore. I liked that you watched Nitro or a pay-per-view, and you had like your garbage public enemy match, and you had like your old guys from WWF doing something, and you had your like cruiserweight match, but then you had like your work your work rate like young 
younger types. I like that if you watched a show, like there were there was always a specific type of match you could depend on being on those shows. And I mean, even your your garbage hardcore matches were still fun to watch because you weren't saturated with them. Yeah. So you know, Public Enemy's putting someone through a table. Cool. All right, we saw that cool thing. What's up next? Oh, gonna be a cruiserweight match. Cool. And it and it it struck me how because of that variety, this show was a breeze to watch. It it was yeah, I agree with that. It was pretty easy to watch. And and I think like today, like you could see, like you could get a WWE pay per view with better matches overall, but it's a chore to sit through because all the matches are the same. Yeah, you, you see the same stuff so much that it feels like you're watching the same thing over and over again. It gets tiresome. What do you think, Matt? Yeah, I, that's kind of a, a, a legit complaint. So, all right. Well, unless you guys have any other thoughts we want to hit, this has been a retrospective on Great American Bash 1996. Collective thumbs up from everybody. So, uh, this is Shad. I want to thank Matt and Brad for joining us. We've been in three quarters. You're in the fourth. Let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you, and we'll catch you next time. Bye.